Humans have faced massive obstacles throughout their existence. The bubonic plague of the 14th century decimated Europe's population by as much as 50%. Spanish flu of just 100 years ago affected nearly a third of the world's population and may have killed as many as 50 million. The coronavirus is what's in front of us today, and it presents a challenge that none of us alive have faced. On this very special episode, the renowned Dr. Bert Mandelbaum of the United States Olympic Committee talks about the virus and the role it's playing in our sports world. I'm a Venice, California-born, Los Angeles-based sports fan, one that has played, coached, announced, and promoted sports my whole life. My love affair with sports started in my own backyard and has led me to this podcast. Thanks to the support of the Amateur Athletic Union in East Bay, I'm excited to bring you Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. Hello, sports historians. Welcome to a very important episode of SSDL. Early in my time as the athletic director at the Archer School for Girls, an all-girls private middle and high school on the west side of Los Angeles in the Brentwood neighborhood, I met Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. His daughter, Ava, played on the Archer volleyball team with my daughter, Sienna. As we chatted at games and enjoyed the success of the team, I had no idea what an extraordinary person he was. Before I give a little background on our guest, I'll welcome the producer of SSDL, Marley Rice. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. Um, we just want to make sure you guys are following us on all of our social media. So if you guys will go to sportsstoriespodcast.com, you can find all of our links there. Cool. Uh, my Twitter handle is at sportsstoriesdl. Uh, hopefully you're um, reading the blogs I send out. Our guest today is uh, Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. He's the author of the 2014 book, The Win Within. And he discusses what is perhaps the biggest challenge we've all faced, the coronavirus. Since we're a sports-themed podcast, the focus of this interview with Bert will be on the coronavirus and its impact on sports. So I recently wrote in a blog that Dr. Bert Mandelbaum's resume is so impressive that you just cherry-pick a few things when you introduce him. Uh, Dr. Mandelbaum has served or continues to serve as the medical director of the Federation of International Football Association, that's FIFA. It's there, There's a medical center of excellence that he leads. He's a team physician for Major League Soccer teams. He's a team physician for the United States Soccer National Team. He's a director of research for Major League Baseball, and he serves on the United States Olympic Committee Advisory Group. It's, it's unbelievable. There's a few other things he does as well. He is an incredible guy. He is an incredible person. And, um, you know, we have seen many strong men and women step forward in this time to provide their leadership and to give us information. And we're, we couldn't be more pleased to have Dr. Bert Mandelbaum do just that on our show. So from the Santa Monica Orthopedic Group Medical Building in Santa Monica, California, here's our interview with Dr. Bert Mandelbaum. Well, again, thank you for being here. I was thinking about something, Bert. I remember we probably first met when Ava was in your your youngest daughter in middle school, maybe eighth grade, mm -hmm. and playing a little volleyball. And that's when I first about took over uh, the program over at Archer as the athletic director. And I remember um, be, um, both my wife, who coached volleyball, and then I coached basketball, always liked Ava not because she, just because she was a good kid and a good athlete and, and smart, but she was always so level-headed. She always seemed to keep things in perspective. And the 
bigger the moment got, the calmer she got. I wonder, where did she get that from? <laughs> oh, I would imagine she got it from her mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mom must have been quite an athlete. That's right. <laughs> I, I have a great Ava story, and, and it starts, she was her third child, and her older sister, Rachel, that you didn't really know. No, but, not as well. Uh, but she was a, a great athlete, a recruited volleyball player from Archer. Okay. And our son, Jordan, who was a uh, all-state ESPN soccer player soccer, recruited yeah. at Brown and, mm -hmm. you know, academy player all the way through. And, and our third child was Ava. And we always thought that Ava was the non-athletic kid. And soccer, she was... Out of 14 kids, she was number 15. Okay. Uh, she was <laughs> chasing enough. butterflies, and we were happy that she was happy, and she was going to be the artist, the right. designer. And one day she came to me and said, you know, I'd like to practice volleyball. So in the garage, I put a, a line on the wall, and she started hitting volleyballs. And okay. every day I'd come home, and I, I hear the ball bouncing, <laughs> the ball bouncing. And despite this, as it was going on, she was always number 15 of 14 and would never play. She, wasn't, she just didn't have the athletic talent. And one day, the coach, we were down 15 to 8, put Ava in. Mm -hmm. And literally, over the next 15 minutes, she had 17 aces in a row. Oh and she aced out the team by herself. <laughs> and, it, and it was astonishing because was no one thought that she was capable of anything as an that athlete. Moment. And then people after that, she was all of maybe <laughs> 12 at the time. And they came up to her and they said, Ava, how did you do it? And she said, she looked at everybody, she says, I practiced. <laughs> uh-huh. And then from that moment on, she became what you know her as, yeah. the captain of the volleyball team. Isn't that so? The cooler kid with under emotion, and she became the athlete. Yeah, she was. She's always very calm under under pressure. She played with my daughter, who's here sure. shooting with us today. Sure. Sienna, Bob, and Marley's are on the board today. But I always remind everybody: understand that life is a journey. Mm -hmm. There's no destination. That you never know. You never know where you're going to go with your child. Mm. If you think they're an athlete. They can become the best athlete. Mm -hmm. Just because they go in fast and hard doesn't mean they're going to be the best athlete. So if we fast forward a few years, um, the next time I think we kind of picked up or whatever, and this was fascinating to me, is we had, um, in effect, a, a spate of injuries, five ACL tears within a short amount of time, uh, the girls over at, at Archer. And I remember you called me um, and you said, hey, we, we, we can fix this. And I it was okay. And so um, the first thing you did was you convened all the coaches and gave your presentation, I think, that you had developed for FIFA soccer. And um, what was fascinating is these were coaches at the end of a hard day. These were off-campus coaches that drove in. So it wasn't easy for them, right, to, like, you know, have all their mental capacity there. And they sat in that room, and they were fascinated by your presentation and I remember at that point going, oh, that's why he is who he is. It was, it was you were able to take a very complex idea and, and make it understandable for the people who then needed to implement it. It's a great presentation. Do you remember this? I do. I do. And uh, one of the most important things to recognize, and as a sports doctor, the only thing I've known is sport mm -hmm. uh, all my life. I, I was an athlete, grew up as an athlete. 
I went on to play college lacrosse and football for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to coach lacrosse. So for me, and that was at John Ho- Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And so for me, sports is part of my continuum in everything I've done as a sports doctor, as a sports coach, as a sports athlete. That's all I know. Right. And so when I speak to coaches, when I speak to the public, for me, it's all about sports all the time. It's just approaching it from different sides with different tools. Mm-hmm. The um, I wanted to say at what we did between reintroducing the way they warmed up, a series of exercises that, that I think you're part of the team that developed, um, recognizing what we needed to do there, and then did it on a wider scale with an uh, open uh, clinic at Santa Monica College. But we went from the same spot of time. We didn't have another ACL injury for close to two years. And the other schools reported the same thing. So just to see that happen right in front of my eyes was fascinating. Now, if that wasn't enough, I'm going to make you prove to us that you are who you say you are, Bert. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to give you some uh, acronyms, and you just tell me what your role is with each organization so that people kind of to get a scope. So with uh, the Federation of International Football, FIFA. Well, I served on their medical committee for uh, between 2007 and 2019, 12 years. Okay. MLS? Major League Soccer. I'm the associate chief medical officer, and I've been that way for MLS since 1996, its inception. Uh, MLB? Major League Baseball. Mm -hmm. I was director of research under Bud Selig from 2011 to 2015. Special Olympics? Special Olympics. I was the chief medical officer for the World Special Olympic Games in 2015 right here in Los Angeles. Love it. Uh, CONCACAF? CONCACAF. I served as the chief medical officer, head of the medical committee from 2015 to 2019. Uh, USOC? The USOC. I served from 2011 to 2015 on their medical network and now get ready for the Tokyo Olympic Games with U.S. Soccer and USOC. And how many Olympics have you attended as a uh, uh, attending medical advisor or doctor? Five Olympics. Five Olympics. How many World Cups? I think including two women World Cups, I have eight World Cups total. So that's good. We're looking for something a little better to talk to today. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Okay, that's fantastic. All right. So what we what I was hoping to do is spend a little time talking what's certainly front and present on everybody's minds, um, and then but you know using it with our lens of through athletics. And I think I, I've always found it fascinating how much we learn through athletics in our culture, and um, and and how those memories imprint. And right now, those memories um, aren't happening because sports really aren't happening. So um, I think more information is better, and we got the right guy. So can you discuss a little bit? um, Oh, and I wanted to preface one other thing. Your book, um, 2014, The Win Within, there's there's two things that I really dug out of there. It's about just being human. It's a survival of the fittest, and then it's also adapting to adversity. And we're certainly faced with that now. 100%, Denny. You know, this, the win within principles, capturing your victorious spirit, the name Mm -hmm. of the book. And what my goal there was to empower each of us to discover that the win is within. And at this moment, at this very moment, that we're being challenged by this virus globally, 
each of us are faced with decisions about how we react to it, mm -hmm. how we survive, how we continue to be the survivors of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Adversity is the engine of unimagined opportunities. We learn that every day. Mm -hmm. We've learned that over and over with every patient we take care of, every athlete who has a problem. And we learn what life is about. And that's what that book was about. That's what mm -hmm. I have learned. And I felt it was important to pass on my reflections and my learnings yeah. in that book. Absolutely. And, and these are adverse times. Um, so can you talk a little bit about when you first learned about the potential for this virus or, uh, you know, when this showed its, its head and then how your world was changed? I was intrigued in January as to what was happening in Wuhan, mm -hmm. China, uh, watching that. And over the years, I have been intertwined with a lot of infectious diseases as, as a physician mm -hmm. in many different ways. In the 80s as a resident, the first time in Baltimore really encountering the HIV virus mm -hmm. and the unknown and the sequential understanding leading to sequ sequential treatment, effective treatment of converting the AIDS to a lethal disease to an effectively treated disease on all mm -hmm. fronts. And then hepatitis, as a surgeon, you always mm. worry about passages of hepatitis B and more recently hepatitis C to all of us. Mm -hmm. And then if you follow the years of my career, I mentioned two women's World Cups. One of them was in 2003 when the World Cup was supposed to be in China mm. and we had the SARS epidemic and we brought it here to the US five months later and we had a very successful World Cup mm -hmm. here uh, right. as a consequence of the SARS. And if you look at the sequence picking out the MERS and then H1N1 mm. in 2009, we had a direct encounter with that. We had at a time I was speaking in San Jose, Costa Rica in August of 2009 Mm -hmm. And there was an outbreak there where 300 of 500 people did get H1N1. Wow. And what happened was that H1N1 is the same virus or okay. similar virus to the one that killed 60 million people in 1918 yeah, the, worldwide. What was called the Spanish flu. was now called the Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. And interesting, by just way of trivia, why that was called Spanish flu was yeah. it was wartime. Mm -hmm. And there were countries that would say different things in the media one way or the other. The neutral country, Spain, <laughs> took, took the hit. <laughs> was the only one reporting the reality yeah, yeah, exactly. of their disease. And so they called it the Spanish uh, yeah, flu. Yeah, because they, 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 they felt, felt like a disproportionate. Exactly. That was terrible. Poor exactly. Guys. They, they came out and told the truth. So San Jose, Costa Rica, 2009 H1N1, 300, 500 people at this meeting I was speaking at contracted the disease, including mm. the president of Costa Rica. Whoa. It was August of 2009. I was on vacation after that with my family. And just so happens, I went back two days later. My daughter got sick. We didn't know what it was. Mm. And then I had to fly off for World Cup qualifiers in Mexico City as we're playing Mexico. We play the game. I'm flying away from Mexico City with Landon Donovan, one of our players. Next mm -hmm. day, he gets H1N1. Whoa which started a very interesting and fascinating phenomena because now our national team, which is a composite of players who go back to England and Germany and Spain and right. Italy, all over. Right. And so it became a, a healthcare issue for the CDC, Centers for Disease Control. And it turned out that yours truly was the vector 
of that disease in that I, c- I didn't contract it, but I carried the virus. Okay. And I then was the vehicle and the vector for both Rachel and Landon and was really the subject of this investigation by the CDC. Wow. Now, take it to today, and it turns out, as of yesterday, the Chinese have just published a paper finding that 55% of the cases were converted from people who are asymptomatic Mm. or they have no evidence of disease. You can't test positive and they transmit disease, much like the H1N1 that I did and I conveyed to Rachel, my daughter, and Landon Donovan. So, in fact, we learn lessons. And so I have been intertwined with these lessons in the last Olympics. We were concerned with Zika virus in Brazil. Yep, 2016. Yes, and then from the FIFA perspective, Ebola Mm. was a major subject that we were focused on in around 13 and 14. So for me, yes, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I fix knees. That's what I do. That's my day job. Mm -hmm. But as a sports physician who work with other organizations, I've always had my eye on what's happening. The Wuhan situation caught my eye. Mm -hmm. And every day I began to follow what was happening. And watching the peak and the escalation in China and South Korea was really intriguing for me to Mm -hmm. understand this. And I felt it was only a matter of time before it went global, Mm -hmm. and it did. I have several friends. Uh, I'm an Italophile and have several friends in in Italy. Uh, Even today, I heard from my good friend, Dr. Alberto Gobi, who this, the previous 24 hours, they saw 500 Italians die just yesterday. And seeing this exponential escalation of this situation where they now have almost 3,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. A week ago, they had 1,500 deaths. So they are going through, despite being cordoned off and quarantined and isolated, this disease continues to pass on. And and for me, watching this uh, from afar and watching what our country was or was not doing... Mm -hmm. I really feel as though we need to step up what we're doing uh, and how we're doing it here in the U.S., and we got to have to do our parts locally. I don't uh, remember in my lifetime anything like this. Um, and then just in what we talked about, the only thing that seemed to be on this big as a level might have been uh, the Spanish flu as far as affecting that much of the planet. Um, what did we do then that we can maybe learn from now? As a well, we talk about social distancing, which we are doing. We talk about PPE, which is a preventative equipment, masks and gloves, mm-hmm. and understanding how to test people's temperatures and understanding whether or not they have fever. All of that can make sense. And mm-hmm. we constantly talk about this curve, this exponential increase in the curve. Mm-hmm. And we now talk about flattening the curve. By doing everything we can do from the social distancing to the quarantines to the understanding who are the symptomatic, who are the contagious, is important and an imperative what we do Mm -hmm. uh, to some degree. And I think finally in our lifetime, no one has ever seen a quarantine and an isolation Mm -mm. like Mm -mm. this in our lives. Uh, And we may never see it again in our life. I I found it interesting that on the backside of the Spanish flu, which I guess ended 
roughly 1920, 22 or something, but they had the 24 Paris games and that they still experienced some ramifications from holding those games. So I would imagine right in the beginning of this, holding the Olympic Games this year causes a lot of consternation on a lot of people's parts. A tremendous amount of consternation. Uh, this, this week, actually, on the 20th, the Olympic qualifiers for U.S. Mm-hmm. soccer was supposed to start. I'm part of that delegation. It's now canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just received an email before I walked into this room from the USOC, and um, and that basically the Olympic Games is still ongoing, has not been canceled. Mm-hmm. That there'll be alternative measures that are taken at this time for further qualification, but people are holding tight at this moment. Interestingly enough. Japan has one of the lower instance, instances of, okay. of of the virus at the present, uh, where they're hovering about five per million, and they have not seen it escalate in Japan. The, it brings up an interesting point because Japan has said some of the right things, but I don't know that the messaging has, has come through completely. It's it's easy to look at the side that Japan is spending maybe $30 billion dollars on hosting these games, and so they would certainly want to have the games. So I think one of the things I wanted to unpack was I don't think there's any delaying by any amount of time the games. It has too many ramifications down road. So it's either a cancel or a go. Is that probably accurate? I'm not sure about that. Uh, and when I say that, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there are issues. We have to figure out. You can't have games unless you have some qualification method we're not going to have at this Maybe point. Maybe half the we're, field, 60% we're not of the field is qualified? It's going to have yeah. to be in some way. Those are going to have to happen in a weekend. A, mm. um, it would have to happen in July. Um, you know, there won't be the long periods of time sure. of training. Business, not at usual. But I don't know how the games could be pushed back or not. It, it seemingly would be difficult and yeah. awkward. Uh, but I don't know enough about those logistics there in Tokyo and the local organizing committee to comment about that. I think mm-hmm. um, it seems as though it would be challenging and difficult, but I don't know enough about those logistics. Well, some of the, you know, when they came out, I think they just had a meeting um, two days ago or three days ago. And they came out and said something like, we're fully committed. Uh, there's no need for drastic decisions now. And and I think that was perceived by some of the athletes as like they weren't looking out for them. You know, like the, one of their one of the athletes on the commission uh, is Haley Wickenheiser and said something like, you know, what about the state of humanity? Um, how about we don't know what's going to happen in the next 24 hours, let alone the next three months. So it there's always been this, the hierarchy of those that are running sport and the athletes. And now you throw this into the middle of it, especially with social media, and it seems like a very difficult, something that's very difficult to control. Well, first off, let's step back and look at Olympic history. Mm-hmm. I think your question is a deep and very thoughtful one and has to be answered in the context of history. Yep. If we look at the Olympic Games, started in 776 B.C. in Olympia. That's how it all started. Mm-hmm. It was only men, no women. So it was geopolitically incorrect at that time. <laughs> right. I didn't see the hashtag. 
You didn't see the hashtag, but geopolitically incorrect. Right. In fact, it was nude men, no women, and convicts, convicts and, and women were barred from competition. And then we know and we follow the Olympics through a time around Christ and then after. And then we saw the earthquake and what happened was the Romans came in and because, and this is the geopolitical crisis at that time. Mm-hmm. It was faced that, and it was Christian, and then saying that this was paganism. And Christian, paganism, conflict right there. Right there, and then it was the stopping of the Olympic Games from 400? Yeah, like a thousand years A.D. Until this Frenchman came forward, Baron de Coubertin, Mm -hmm. and the founder of the modern Olympic Games came forward. Mm -hmm. And then we started Olympic Games, and we went through... Uh, we had uh, Olympic Games. First, women were not, wasn't politically Mm-mm. correct. Archery and swimming, they got involved. And we saw the games of the 20s, and we think about some of the highlights of the 20s, the Harold Abrams, the Chariots of Fire, sure. the 32 games, and the bringing on of the women. And the 36. Jesse Owens. It was the Jesse Owens, the games in Berlin, and then sure. 40, the games not being contested. So 40, 44. Yeah. And then, then we go after we conduct the Olympic Games and we come to 84 and we get into more politics with the Russians and they yep. don't participate. And then we see the miracle on ice and it brings us to where we are today in how the context of humanity and the Olympic Games really is brought out. The sport of life mm-hmm. and the life right. of sport intersect right there. Mm-hmm. And here we are, it's a, it's a long answer to your question about the Tokyo Olympic Games. But inherent in this history that the games always are fraught with geopolitics. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's about a virus and it's about people's health and well-being and humanity being focused upon as our highest priority. And so we as leaders have to keep that in context in mind in every decision. I think from my translation of what's come out at this point is that it may be premature to make that decision. It may be very well the decision July 24th to not have people congregate at any Olympic Games. But for today, I think the spirit of the Games was carry on as best we can under the challenging environment. Stay safe, be isolated, train as you may, and even though we have these challenges like there have been in the past, the games can potentially go on. I don't know that there's an answer right now. There's certainly a question, and we want to have an answer to that question today in March for what happens four months from now. Right. Uh, but I think what the leaders are saying, uh, stay healthy, let's do the best for the athlete, and let's not make a decision today as of this time. I guess that's where it was lost in the messaging was it sounded like they're, we're going forward instead of, uh, okay, two organizations I'm, I've been involved with. One is the AAU, or I'm still involved with, and the CIF I was, right? Both of those basically said, okay, pump on the brakes. We'll get back to you in the first week of April and see where we are. And it didn't sound like the IOC said that. They said, we're moving forward. And I think that's the perception that came out because even people in Japan that pushed back against that that had, political positions within the sport were asked to publicly apologize and stay on point. And I get the stay on point. That makes sense. It just seems that 
this is causing external. Right. I I would say for for the moment, cooler heads prevail. Mm-hmm. Let's look at the reality today that we're dealing with. Yeah. We've had a lot of athletes who tested positive. Yesterday we learned right. about Kevin Durant and three of his teammates. That's right. You go to Europe and you have players from Sampdoria, players from Chelsea, coaches, doctors, everybody who is testing positive in, in Germany, in England, in Italy, in Spain. So right now we have ubiquitous spread okay. at the moment. And we're just learning. We're trying to figure everything out, what the patterns are. So for today, it's about being safe and doing the right thing Mm -hmm. and not conducting any sporting events, no practice, keeping people isolated and quarantined. That's the word of the day. And I would say if I were answering the question for the USOC, Today, we're focused on maintaining the highest level of health prevention mm-hmm. of this pandemic globally. We will do anything in our power to make it as safe and as effective as the treatments can be today. And let's deal with the decision tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow. Absolutely. That's how I would say it. What, did, um, what instructions were you given, for instance, in, in Rio as it related to the, um, the Zika virus? Like, did they, was there... How did they have you do your job considering what may or may not happen? You know, Zika virus was a very different type of, of beast, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it affects pregnant women, uh, and it affects the development of the fetus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in reality, um, it's, it's, it's a different level of public health in addressing the nature okay. of this particular virus uh, everything from safe sex and abstaining from sex were the key treatment interventions at those times. At those times. And uh, because it wasn't going to be healthy males or unpregnant women who we would know would get and contract that disease. So the whole different. approach there in Brazil, uh, in Rio, was very different because of the peculiarities and the specificities of that virus. What would you anticipate if the games were to go forward and were like, well, how, how does, how does the messaging work to you um, from whether it's IOC or the LOC would, was that who would give you instruction on, on how to handle it? You're bringing your medical um, knowledge to the, to, to it. How, how does the whole, how does that all roll down to you? Well, or roll up to you, you know, the way it works for the Olympic games is you have the international Olympic games sure. And then you have the various federations. Mm -hmm. uh, They run each of their sports, yeah. Yes, right. And you have the international uh, confederations uh, that you have for each of the sports. Uh, For us, I work with U.S. soccer. So you have U.S. soccer working directly with the U.S. OC. uh, And I know they have been working very closely together. U.S. soccer has been working with Major League Soccer and other leagues. Mm -hmm. And if you notice what happened here... Uh, in the last few weeks was as soon as we had Rudy Gobert test mm-hmm. positive NBA. before that, we were talking about who should go where, whether or not the media can go into the locker room, right. whether or not we should play games without crowds. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, real quickly, we canceled oh. everything. We canceled training. We canceled games. We canceled participation in the NCAAs. And again, the March Madness, which is just amazing to, to see that we've done all of that with a, with a keystroke. Which, in looking at it now, 
we're act, I mean, those were good decisions. And we see, because we see even with canceling that then what the spread was, if you just look at your NBA model. Um, so, so soccer between MLS didn't even get started yet. They were just, what, in training camp? Oh, they did. We, they were, th- we were three games oh, that's into right, the season. Three games in. We were three yeah. games into the season in full training mode. And the last game we had, the weekend before That's last, right. yeah. uh, was was played. There was a lot of discussion about uh, fans and screening fans and whether or not media should come into the locker room. And subsequent to that, uh, it all blew up with a positive test. And how, how did you get the message? Did that? Did was there email? Or did the commissioner get to you? Did each club make their own decisions? Well, again, there have been so many conference calls uh, in the <laughs> last two weeks about coronavirus and emails uh, that went on between U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, wow. the team uh, details. And as this evolved, and again, when you, when you first go back to the first question, you go back to Wuhan when mm. everybody was just trying to figure that out and and then you want even to just go back into the reports just two weeks ago. Our president was actually saying this was a hoax mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and conveyed that, which in fact created a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. Not, not to be funny no, or even too critical, but it created an anarchy in America. Yeah. To have our president of the United States laugh and at a pep rally mm-hmm. basically disparage the nature of the work of our doctors mm-hmm and Anthony Fauci and the director of HHS and our Surgeon General Mm -hmm. who are saying, hold on, we have a big problem here. And um, that that even created a bigger problem. And I think the legacy of this moment for me is that negativity and laughing and the smugness for me Mm -hmm. was really hard to observe. Hard to give a guy a 10 when he does that. It's hard to give anybody the respect because it just swings in the face of evilness and being distracted to not knowing what the reality is in this situation. If you had to speculate, is there going to be any sports that have an easier way of coming back in? Do they all come back in at the same time because there's a collection of thought at the highest levels that it's safe for fans to congregate or these players to play, what, like what what's that look like w- when eventually it turns over? You know, the, all those phone calls and conference calls and the emails I talked about, mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to quadruple those mm. uh, because it's going to be, we're going to have to figure that out. Mm. Um, it really depends on the impact of what happens in the next two weeks. If we could flatten that curve... I think the impact of the intensity and severity of this pandemic as we see it today and having our tools, and if it isn't quite realized like it is in Italy, um, we'll have one set of recommendations and one curve of re-escalation. So I think at this point, I think we have to be guarded with our interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the best thing about where we are today, we're all isolated we're all looking at each other like, what do we do now? Yeah, And it's like we've never been before. It's, it's, it, 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 it truly is the word, surreal. Mm-hmm. That said, it's the best and right thing for this moment. 
mm-hmm. as we continue to watch the World Health Organization's numbers and worldometers and watch those numbers of cases around the world, where it's going and, and how it's getting there, and the efficacy of our measures, I think we'll be able to make a judgment what we do. We don't know what to do in terms of tomorrow mm-hmm. and the next day and the next day. So we're just approximating. We're saying for two weeks we're going to do this. But it may be many more days because if we're still at the same point and this is still gaining intensity mm. and spread the way we think it may, and it's going to be confounded by the fact that we now finally have testing devices mm-hmm. uh, that aren't going to be four to five days. It's going to be a matter of hours in terms of results. We're going to see more cases. And, and that's going to freak some people out, but, but that's to be expected. To be expected. But then we could get a, a better sense of the reality of what's happening. Now, remember, this nemesis, this virus, mm-hmm. is not only what we know it is, is COVID-19, mm-hmm. but it also has a tremendous potential to mutate. Now, what does a mutation of a virus mean? It means that that virus has the capability of coming in as A and coming out as D. It also has the meaning that it can replicate twice, four, six times as fast as it did previously. It also means that it can infect people in a different way than the previous mutated virus affected people. So there's an unknown there as well. And, And again, all of us have to do what we're doing as best as we can. Life has to go on. Uh, but we, we have to react together in a collaborative way, and it's what I call the three Ps. Okay. We have to be prepared, mm-hmm. which means that we have to have the tools, the technique, the hardware, and the software of, of managing this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Two, we have to have preparedness, which means that we've got to know how and where we can find the test. There's mm-hmm. a drive-by place right around the corner, 1811 Wilshire, that my wife is running. Okay. And then we know they're out there and cars drive by. They have people in the appropriate PPE, the protective mm-hmm. equipment. They're doing the tests, the preparedness. What are we going to do if we're overrun with cases? We have to have enough ventilators and which mm-hmm. hospital is doing what and how we identify who should stay home and who needs to come in the hospital. And that's what we call preparedness. And the third P, it's about perspective. Mm-hmm. We have to have perspective and to know that tonight will exist for all of us, 99.9% of us, that there's going to be enough food and water right. and that we're going to be around our family as best we can today. And, and we'll look at tomorrow with a, more of a critical eye. So perspective, the third P, is really key. I thought the third P was going to be pizza. It could be pizza tonight. I think that's what we're doing is uh, we're ordering takeout all the time because it's important. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sports Stories Podcast. That was a great one, Denny, wasn't it? Unbelievable. Dr. Mandelbaum has got such an incredible life for so long. And it was super cool of him to invite us in uh, to his place and then um, also to just to go for like, Two yeah. and a half hours. He spoke to us for two and a half hours. I'm exhausted after that. I am mentally done. He is so smart. I'm sure all of you guys are mentally done after that one episode. Yeah. But luckily, we have two or three more coming your way. Yeah, we do. We'll, we'll have multiple episodes with Dr. Mandelbaum. He's uh, such an important figure 
in uh, medicine and in sports and uh, in really in American history. He's really yeah, touched he's a, a lot great of guy. important points. Um, so tune in uh, the next couple of weeks. We're going to be featuring Dr. Mandelbaum in a few more episodes. But uh, join us tomorrow for our Facebook Live at 5. We have a special yeah. guest coming in, don't Mike we, Denny? Mike Boley, uh, four-time state champion volleyball coach for Loyola High School, six-time section winner, was named the national championship. Uh, national champions in 2009. Wow. Mike Boley. Um, but what's interesting, uh, piggybacking, uh, hearing about Burt Battlebaum talk about us dealing with yeah. the coronavirus, right, is here's a high school coach in Southern California that is dealing with not being able to interact with his team, yep. a team that would have been one of the top four teams trying to win a section title, if not, you know, a uh, regional title. And um, so he's going to talk about both, you know, being a coach, but also what it's like to be a coach dealing in this time yep. with the coronavirus. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. So join us tomorrow, guys, and thanks for tuning in for another episode of Sports Stories with Denny Lennon. See you next week. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is supported by the AAU. Find a local event and join at aausports.org. And remember, you can catch your favorite amateur sports live stream, replays, and highlights at ballertv.com. Sports Stories, along with East Bay, supports the Heroes Movement, a nonprofit that bridges the gap from mental or physical therapy to getting strong again through strength and conditioning workouts. This free service is available for any veteran of the United States Armed Forces. Visit heroesmovementusa.org for more information. Sports Stories with Denny Lennon is a production of Sports Stories, Inc. and is available on Apple Podcasts and YouTube or wherever you listen and watch. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. It really helps spread the word. You can find all our social media links, archives, and other info on our website at sportsstoriespodcast.com. Special thanks to the John R. Wooden Course and Wooden's Wisdom. Original music for Sports Stories is courtesy of Lennon Music Productions. Original images by Sienna Lennon Photography. Sports Stories is produced by Marley Rice edited by Bob McCall, and researched by Teresa Dolan. Additional staff include Christine Jimbo, Jake Downey, Ray Castro, and Buck Magic Lennon. Check it out, Buck!